I, by my nature, am a people pleaser. I want people to like me. I want, you know, I want a culture where there's a lot of mutual respect and friendship, mm. right, and love between people. And that, and it is really hard to create that relationship, that type of culture. I think it might even be impossible, and a culture where it is. I'm telling you to go left. So go left. Yeah. Oh, you didn't go left. All right. We're going to find a new person who will go left. I'm sorry. From Profit Will Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, a show about those in the trenches actually doing the work. I'm Patrick Campbell. And I'm Neil Desai. And on today's show, Rand Fishkin speaks with radical transparency about the difficulties he had as a first-time founder and how these lessons helped him achieve future success. Founding a company is hard. Growing a growth stage company is hard. Running a growth stage company is hard. Working at a growth stage company is hard. And it's so hard because you're literally taking nothing and trying to create something from it. But I think it's especially hard because not only do you have to acquire the customer, but you also have to monetize and retain them on an ongoing basis, right? Yeah, even if it's not a subscription company, it's one of those things where you got to get the person to come back and buy that gallon of milk every single week. And in a B2B piece of software, you got to get them to basically keep paying for that product every single month. Ah, that's true. I love milk. You love, do you really? Yeah. I thought you don't drink milk because you're a vegan. No, I mean, I'm, I still love milk. Besides your fake veganism that I just realized. I'm so excited about today's interview because it's with Rand Fishkin, the founder of Moz and the founder and CEO of Spark Toro, who is going to take us through a pretty wild story that he's been very, very open with, not only in this interview, but also in his book, Lost and Founder, which if you listen later in the episode, you're going to find out how you can actually get the book for free. But what I'm most excited about with Rand's story is that he's going to take us through why Moz failed under his tutelage and what he learned from that, not only as a founder and as an executive, but also as someone building a SaaS company. And with that, let's first get a little bit of background on Rand, including how he started and had a little bit of a rocky relationship with his mother when he brought Moz into fruition. You know, but not everyone may know that I dropped out of college, started a company with my mom that was initially a web design company, and then became an SEO consulting business called SEO Moz. And then in 2007, we became a software company. Well, we launched some software. It went so well our first six months, right, it, with this subscription model. <laughs> it was using PayPal. Nice. Um, I love it. Right, to, to get access to just like a few little tools that we had built for, for SEO for ourselves. Uh, that six months in, we were like, oh my God, this is doing more revenue than our consulting business. We slowly started phasing out consulting. At the end of the year, we raised a venture capital round and the investors said, we're really interested in this, but Rand, we want you to be CEO. So I had a tough conversation with my mom and uh, was CEO at this company, which started as SEO Moz and became Moz for the next seven years. And you know, during that time, I mean, it was kind of a crazy growth journey, right? It was 100% year-over-year growth. So when I stepped down as CEO, we were doing 30, a little over $30 million in, in revenue uh, annually and, you know, had tens of thousands of customers, had had built this business. But we were hitting this inflection point where our acquisition was not keeping up with churn. And so like a lot of subscription businesses, I think we hit it much later than most folks tend to hit it. I think most people hit it in the few million dollars of revenue and we hit it in the sort of you know, mid tens, but over the next four years, uh, Moz, you know, grew between 20% to 
nine percent year over year, right? So that growth rate really kind of dropped off a cliff, um, and as a result, you know, business struggled in lots of different ways. And I think the leadership team and the board was like kind of searching for avenues, like, hey, let's try and go broader and do all these other things. Oh, that didn't work at all. Let's go refocus on SEO. Let's try and you know, we acquired this get listed company. Let's try and make Moz Local happen. We'll do a sales based, you know, uh, enterprise sales based business, and that sort of you know has struggled very very hard and been real tough and. Um, I think that, very frankly, it's a, you know, it's a challenging world when you get into retention stuff, especially because Moz had always been a business that was extremely good at marketing, but on the acquisition side, like getting people to know about us, getting people to love us through our content and, you know, video series like Whiteboard Friday and, you know, learning about SEO, the beginner's guide, all this stuff that, that you know, Moz helped a lot of people. And so they liked and trusted the brand. And so they were willing to give the software a shot. Retention is always a struggle. One thing I really appreciate about Rand is that he is both so just headstrong in the right direction, meaning like he's just going to jump right in, similar to like, you know, dropping out, starting a company with his mom, all of these different things, but also just so transparent. Uh, you don't get those two things often with people where some people will be very, very jump in, very, very headstrong, but they won't be transparent because they're really, really embarrassed by the failures that they made. And I, I just can't imagine being in Rand's position, raising money, being out there, having to have that conversation with your mom, and then all of a sudden running into you know retention you know, issues, <laughs> right. which is something that's just, it's, it's so unforeseen, especially when you were building a business in you know, SaaS 1.0, SaaS 2.0, kind of where Rand and Moz really was building. Mm -hmm. No, and it's, just, it's, it's extremely refreshing to see him describe these challenges because you see a lot of superhero college dropout stories yeah. um, that are all successful, right? But Rand brings a fresh perspective to this and saying, listen, retention permeates your entire business and totally. sooner or later it's going to be a challenge. Totally, and that's what we talk about a lot, right? You yeah. know, people who have been listening to ProfitWell, you know, content for a long time are probably, you know, bored with this at this point, but... Yeah. You know, a subscription business, is, and it's really easy to say this now. I don't think we really realized this in, in SaaS 1.0 and 2.0 because it was all about, hey, just spend a ton of money to buy the market yep. because, you know, the software is hard to build. You know, it's hard to build a product that crawls all these websites and, you know, give scores to them and things like that. So just go, right? And then as that was happening, all of a sudden we, we reached a point where I was like, no, there's a lot of different competitors, a lot of different fast followers that can actually yep. you know, be created because the cost of building software and the cost of building products went down so substantially. And now, as, as we've talked about a lot, it's not just about acquiring those customers, but monetizing them and retaining them. And yep. that's the beauty of the subscription models that the relationship is built into how you make money. And when that relationship goes sour with that particular customer, all of a sudden, you know, it's really, really hard because you can't just acquire more and more customers. You got to keep those customers around in the long term. You lose the advantage of the subscription if those customers leave. I think that, that makes a ton of sense. It's especially compounded by the fact that their product was built for acquisition, right? It helped totally. other SaaS companies acquire more customers, and that's what they spent all their time thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of permeated the culture. But let's go a little bit deeper because Rand is about to tell us very specifically mm -hmm. what he thinks or the reasons that they missed out in terms of retention. And I think it's a really, really good retrospective, especially since he's had some time away from Moz since he started SparkToro, just to understand like what went wrong sure. with that original company. Let's see it. Let's see it. My biggest three things, you know, when I think about uh, why Moz struggled, I think one, never building 
personal relationships with customers. Um, I, I should, shouldn't say never, right? I have personal relationships with at least a few hundred, if not that yeah. few thousand of our customers, but that doesn't, that doesn't scale, right? You can't have the founder be like, okay, Rand, you're going to meet 25,000 people. I want you to befriend them all. <laughs> it's not possible. But I think that we slowly started to do it. You know, in the last couple of years, um, Moz built this team of folks who basically helped with onboarding, right? So they'd have a 30-minute phone call, 45-minute phone call with people who joined the service, you know, after, I think this is, again, a tough, it, it doesn't work well with the free trial model, right? Because there's too many people taking free trials. You just can't have calls with them all. Some people don't want to take calls, all that kind of thing. But we found that people who were willing to have a call after their first free trial month and they converted to a paid subscription, retention went way, way up for those folks for, for their entire life of the customer business. So failing to make that relationship I think is one personal relationship. I think a second one was in the later years, Moz was not well differentiated from competitors. So it feels easy and fluid and like there's no barrier to, eh, let's quit Moz and try Ahrefs. Let's quit Ahrefs and try SEMrush. Let's quit SEMrush and try, you know, Systrix or any of these other ones, right? In, in some ways it's good. I like making it easy for people to quit. I like making data portable. I don't love lock-ins. But I think that there's a ton of things that we could have and should have done to differentiate the business. Everything from, you know, UX to uh, proprietary metrics to using the quantity of information that we had about, you know, so many businesses and how they performed in SEO. And then being able to apply that to everyone else, yeah. right? And so that gives you that runaway advantage of being the first mover. Totally. We, we really didn't do that. And then I think the third one, to be totally honest, is how we sold Moz. In a lot of ways, the product worked this way and it was sold this way, which is if you have SEO problems, come audit your site. We'll show you all the things you need to do to fix it. Then you fix them, but it's not, it's not about the ongoing value of, oh, and now you monitor your rankings and see how your competitors are doing and compare progress over time and look at the links that you didn't get that you should be getting and, you know, all these kinds of things. It was not marketed that way. And the product, while it provided that, you had to like figure out how to get all that stuff. Sure. As opposed to the, you know, the initial onboard experience was just like, okay, here's a checklist of stuff to fix. Mm -hmm. Like Patrick, all, all these things are broken on, you know, whatever, profitwell.com and uh, fix all this stuff. And so then you're like, great, this was a free trial. I fixed all my stuff. My SEO is going up. Cancel, I'm good. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people think of SEO that way. Sure. It's like a one-time activity. So Moss struggling, this in hindsight makes perfect sense, right? And that's that's great. He's he's had the opportunity, the the advantage of distance. But I think this brings up a couple of really, really interesting points. One thing that SEO Moz or Moz has that is 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 very, very problematic in this new wave of subscription companies is they don't have an anti-active usage product or a workflow product. So when you think of the spectrum of products, you have products that you're in every single day, like you know your CRM, right, or your email. You're using them every single day. You use them to work, especially in B2B. Yep. In B2C, it might be you know, a particular product that you know, gives you joy or automates your life or something like that. And then you have these products that are like anti-active usage. These are products that you don't really need to necessarily like actually actively use. Sort of like Retain. Just like Retain. Yeah. Um, Profile Retain, you plug it in, basically reduces your credit card failures um, and soon to be your active churn mm -hmm. as well. Moz and a lot of analytics products, this is why Profile is free, yep. 
and we had the benefit of hindsight and seeing, you know, what was happening with companies like Moz and other analytics companies, they're kind of in the middle. You don't absolutely need it to do your job unless you're an SEO marketer. Yep. You also don't necessarily need to use it all the time if you're an SEO marketer because you're not necessarily logging into it every single day unless you're in a certain industry where SEO is the dominant category. So all of a sudden your market sizing gets all over the place. You get a lot of different people who are kind of like, oh, I kind of need this and going through the episodic churn that he described, which is thanks for telling me what's wrong. Let me go figure out how to fix those things, which might take two to 12 months. And then maybe I'll come back. But I might try out one of these other products as right. well. Oh, man, that's just so tough. I bet his monthly willingness to pay just plummeted, right? I mean, you yeah. try the product and then you're done. <laughs> but I bet it also yeah. like skyrocketed yeah. for certain folks, right, yeah. who, who got hooked on Moz. And that's why Moz absolutely has happy customers. You know, they've, they've gone through these growth rates after they've learned some of these lessons and they've, they've since recovered. But I think what's really kind of fascinating is that when you look at and, and, you know, when he said this, I was like, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about because – I would use SEO Moz or Moz at the time. And when you look at the onboarding and you look at all the power that they give you, and then you try to go to SEMrush or SEMrush and you try to log in and SEMrush is like, Mm-mm, you got to pay us yeah. or do something within seven days to see anything. It's not the same. It's yeah. just a different, yeah. a different style, right? And the SEMrush style is, is really what works for this type of product versus something that's like giving away too much because... You, know, you just end up getting way too many like leads that you're trying to service. And, you know, I would even argue that building relationships on a one-to-one basis or even a many-to-one basis just doesn't even really work as much with these types of products. Yeah. Um, still branding and like, you know, still have like the conferences and things like that and great, you know, content. But I don't think it necessarily works for these types of products anymore because they're they're a game of inches at this point. Yep, it, it's tricky because onboarding permeates the entire like totally. first time user onboard like experience, right? So from a product perspective, you want a phenomenal onboarding. Absolutely. And on one end of the spectrum, you have the superhuman style. We're going to talk to everyone, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, and and then the other, you may have a completely touchless model. But I think finding that balance for a product that you're not in daily is is tricky. Yeah, it's super, super tough. And I think that's why it becomes a game of numbers because even their style, which has let as many people in as possible or was their style, ultimately like makes it super difficult because you have, you, you have too many onboardings. Yeah. You know, and that's when you try to solve that with a person. But if you get thousands and thousands and the lead scoring isn't as great, now they obviously have, have fixed some of this. But I can imagine in, in the come up, you know, basically dealing with this and then not being able to kind of adjust is, is super problematic. And super I'm sure. Tough. Yeah. Yeah. But I think one thing that's gotten me, and I know Randy's about to tell us about this a little bit, is that this is a cultural thing. Hmm. Like if you're an acquisition-based company or you're a growth company or you're a balanced growth company, those are all cultural. Those stem from the top, as Rand is about to tell us. Those stem from the people that you have there. And those stem through even the decision-making and how you make decisions at a particular company. Interesting. It's not like they didn't have a customer success team, though. No, but I think that the, it, it's, it's not just enough to have a team, hmm. right? Like we have a product team, we have a customer success sure. team. It's, it's not about having the actual resources, either okay. the people or the products that you have. It's about how you use those resources in order to optimize for the right thing. So obviously Moz was coming into a certain like way into the market and basically was like, hey, acquire customers, acquire customers, acquire customers, right? Yep. The problem is, is that they weren't necessarily retention focused, and all of a sudden, they were losing all these customers. And then they were at a certain size where they couldn't actually solve this particular problem. And as Rand's about to tell us, the way that they would solve problems at Moz wasn't really conducive to solving this retention problem. 
That's fair. I mean, everything stems from people. Everything stems from culture. And I'm sure right? the inertia is just so much bigger when you're a 100% oh, company than a yeah, 20% company. It's nuts, we're, right? we're seeing that here as we grow. Totally, totally. Yeah. As we grow, it's yeah. like it gets harder to do things. Yeah. You know, when you're 80 people, 100 people, 300 people, 500 people, than when you were like 20 people. Sure. And I could just be like, hey, Neil, go figure this out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So let's learn a little bit more about this because I think this is where we have like the true nuggets of wisdom that we can figure out from Rand talking to us about the failures at Moz when it comes from a culture perspective, which had a great culture. Yeah. Just not necessarily the culture to solve this problem. Totally. Let's go back to Rand. Do you think, so like that's, I mean, there's positioning there, there's packaging there, there's who you're targeting and how you're targeting them. Yeah. All of this, we're sitting here and it's like, yeah, it seems perfectly intuitive, right? Like, oh, that seems, that's totally right, right? And I know that they've implemented, like, you know, when you were there, some of this stuff, and like when you left, and some of this stuff that you kind of seeded, kind of finished off. But to help fixing things is so much more difficult yeah. than why? starting from so, a... Yeah, so why, why do you think, one, was it hard to see that those were the things mm-hmm. to fix? And then two, why was it so hard? Because I know, you know, you talked about the multi-product strategy. You guys went after that and went hard after that, right? And then it, I mean, you had loyal customers there, but then it just wasn't the right thing. And why do you think this is so hard? One thing that is absolutely true is we are in a relatively new world with software as a service and subscription businesses and SEO software is relatively new, right? It's 12 years old, 11 years old. And so there are not a lot of people who have seen this through and can tell you you know, these are the mistakes you're going to make. Here are the challenges and problems. I think this is why it's so important for folks like us who have these experiences, especially ones that go wrong, to be willing to talk about them, right? And be willing to share them because that is what helps the next generation of people who are building product or service or business be able to avoid those potholes and road bumps and collisions. All the things. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I love your book, Boston. Oh, Powder. yeah, thanks, I man. mean, because that, you go, you go hard into the, yeah, like, yeah. some of those things, which I think is, like, very good for a lot of folks. Because you see this so many times with, um, you know, especially, you know, being a first-time founder, and, like, I talked to a lot of first-time founders, where we're trying to relearn the wisdom that you've already learned. Well, and, I mean, I think when you're the... When you're doing it the second or third time, you've seen a lot of those mistakes and it it makes it a lot easier. I mean, um, if you look at a lot of the companies that have done very well, many of them have either, have done one of two things, right? In their early scaling, they brought in experienced veterans and experienced people who'd seen this journey before. Um, I, I think a lot of people would point to like, oh, look at Facebook bringing in you know, people like Sheryl Sandberg and, and many other executives. Uh, oh, look at Google bringing in uh, Eric Schmidt, right, early on as like a, hey, let's get some uh, experience on that. And that is true, you know, culturally throughout those organizations of, of top grading and adding people in who've seen things through, right? HubSpot was started by veterans, people who had started multiple companies in the past and, and built those. Moz was started by a kid and his mom, <laughs> right? Right, and like, okay, well, now, ne- now, you know, you might say like, well, I hope Rand knows what he's doing with SparkToro and like figures that out. And, you know, fingers crossed. I, I think I'm sure I'll make new mistakes. I hope I don't make the same exact ones again. Uh, Any time you are in a big transformational period and you have people early stage starting out, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. 
as you were, because Maz, I mean, you weren't small, right? And, and as you end, continued yeah. to grow and continued to add leadership and all these different things, you know, you still had this retention problem. When you were looking at that and you had the resources, you know, not, you know, your first time, but at that point, you know, you'd been in the trenches enough that you knew what was going on. What do you think was most difficult there? Because I know there's a lot of companies that they get to that 10 million or more, they, they push higher than that, but then it's just like hard to get that escape velocity, especially because of retention mostly. And it's, it's again, not for a lack of being able to maybe look at the problem, it's just the lack of action or like the lack of speed, right? Or what do you think it really came down to? Because you guys had, you know, theoretically, like not all the resources, but a lot of resources, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it is infuriating and frustrating and I think it takes a toll on your soul to realize how slow things move in an organization with a few hundred people, right? And, um, and I think that's one of the things that we did, that I did very poorly at Moz is create an organization with a bias to action and, um, and an ability to solve things as opposed to, I think Moz very much had a, a culture of needing cohesion uh, between people and being willing to sacrifice speed in exchange for making sure everyone felt comfortable with what was being changed before anyone does any work on it and making sure that along each step of the process of the change process that there's approvals and more approvals from sort of all around. I think that culture can work quite well at, at very large companies, right? Because you, you create a sense of like, hey, I'm actually important. They consider my opinion. All the voices in the room are heard. Uh, but it is it can be a death knell, right? A death yeah. by a thousand cuts when you have a business with a problem and you need to make fast changes and you need to be able to iterate many times because you will make, you know, the first 10 things you try to fix the mistake will be wrong. Got it. And you have to have a team that keeps trusting and keeps making those changes as opposed to a team that goes, okay, stop. We no longer believe in this like person or leader or whatever it is, right? And, and their decision-making authority. And so we need to go to a more, you know, comprehensive buy-in model. Yeah. Cultural, yeah. cultural problem. It's a weird like balance between like letting chaos reign and trying to reign in the chaos, right? Because you can't go complete anarchy because then everyone's moving in all different directions. You can't go like lockstep because then you're just like so slow. It's like bureaucratic, right? And I don't know. I, I find like it's 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 so emotionally taxing. Like it's, I don't know how you feel about this, but as a founder, like it's so emotionally taxing because you're sitting there and you're like, just go, like just go, or just go this way, not that way. And it's just you hit it from both sides. And and well, I know and you this also what you have to. About, but yeah, yeah. You have to be. You have to be willing to sort of say a few things like, I know I might be wrong and we're gonna do it anyway. I know that this other way could be the way to do it and we're gonna try that next or we're gonna try that in you know three iterations, but for now we have to do, do this. And, and I think the um, can be very tough, right? I, I, by my nature, am a people pleaser. I want people to like me. I want, you know, I want a culture where there's a lot of mutual respect and friendship. Mm right, and love between people, and that and it is really hard to create that relationship, that type of culture, I think it might even be impossible, and a culture where it is, I'm telling you to go left. So go left. Yeah. Oh, you didn't go left. All right, 
We're gonna find a new person who will go left. I'm sorry. Ugh, my heart aches. I know. That that's it's so tough. But like why why does your heart? I mean like this is this is a real example of you just have to go through it to to, to build that wisdom. You just have to live in and actually build it yourself to, to get that. Right? This is what's so weird about building a company is because you hear all about the you know, the mom and the son or, you know, any combination of family that made it, right? You know, Qualtrics, the family company that made it. You don't hear about all the companies led by gray-haired, 45-year-old men and women who are absolutely crushing it because it's yeah. just not a, like a sexy story, right? Yeah. Even though those are where the sexy numbers are coming from. And I think this kind of, you know, in, in the line of your thinking, wisdom is something that has to be learned. It's really, really hard to teach it. So even, you know, I think what, what hurts when we listen to Rand is not necessarily that, you know, we, we believe or don't believe it. It's probably that we believe it because we've gone through it. Yeah. And you and I, we've definitely have gone through this at ProfitWell. Some of the things that he's talking about and learning some of these things, especially around accommodation. Mm-hmm. You know, in the early days, we, you know, especially me as a first time founder, I was like, oh, I want everyone to like me and I got to accommodate. Like, I don't know what that opinion is valid or not valid. And I think that consensus building, thankfully, we didn't necessarily have that. We had a very disagreeable culture in a healthy way, sometimes not as healthy between Facundo and I, but we've worked on that <laughs> over there. the years. Yeah. But I think that's a really, really big thing is that if, if you're consensus building in a company, like you're not a politician, like you're not building things out. And, and my heart aches because I learned that the hard way. And like, fortunately, I guess for us, I learned it on smaller things rather than mm-hmm. the whole company. What, what's the line though between that and creating alignment? Because I also think part of your role is, is aligning the team and making sure we're all headed in the same way. Right? Yeah, I think, it, I think it comes down to you need to be disagreeable for the discussion, but there needs to be a point where it says, and Rand kind of got at this, which is we're going to go this way and I know I may be wrong. But, but go. we're going this way, sure. right? We've listened to all the data. We've looked at everything. We've done as much due diligence as we can based on the value of this decision. And now we have to go. And this is where disagree and commit comes in, right? So you be disagreeable in the discussion. And then as soon as the discussion, and then, you know, in certain decisions, it's a really, really large decision. So with Facundo, we basically, we have certain things in the business that we really care about that the other person is technically in charge of. Mm. And so what we've come to an understanding on, and this helped our relationship a lot, was those things we will argue until we agree. And what that means is, and that's a little bit of consensus building on like a two-person level, but we will argue about something until we agree or we disagree and commit and set up a test or set up you know, a, a certain environment for us to do that particular thing. And I think that's a really, really big you know, cultural phenomenon. This is why one of our core principles, one of four, is be disagreeable, think critically, because we shouldn't be consensus building. We should be challenging one another. And it's not licensed to be an asshole, yep. but what it is is basically a license to challenge everything, rethink everything, and then when decisions have been made, master the art of execution, which is another one of our principles, and basically go after that particular plan, even if you disagree with it. And at that point, it's not about I told you so if that plan blows up. It's, hey, we know that we're all going to make decisions that aren't necessarily going to pan out properly. Totally. And I think ultimately I've seen it work really well because we're all in it to, to pursue the mission here and, and search for the truth behind what's going to help us grow the business, right? So even if it's uncomfortable for a period of time, ultimately oh, it, gets it, uncomfortable. it, it, it yeah. pushes us to, you know, to, to, to succeed. 
but Rand kind of talks about this and I know he's going to talk about it in a second. Like it is all about building that muscle. Yeah. Right. And this is why when people bring, you know, arguments about snacks and arguments about, you know, these other, you know, things that you or I might look at, or although you do like your snacks, yeah. um, you and I look at and go, oh, this is ridiculous. Why are we having this conversation? You have to be very, very careful not to, you know, say, hey, this isn't important. Right. Now, there's a point where you might have to have an individual conversation about like, hey, this is what we should be focused on. Yeah. But those conversations should be met with, all right, let's have that, that argument because I'm expecting you to also disagree on these bigger things or these things that have a more consequential like impact on the whole business. And it's like building that muscle up. And I know that's really easy to say. And I think that, you know, there's there is a world where, you know, and I, I think this is where we can credit Facundo a lot. There's a world where left to our own devices without someone as disagreeable as Facundo, because he's very, very high in that spectrum. I'm close to him, but then we have Peter, who's on the opposite end of the spectrum. There's a, there's a world where we went the Mao's route, where we wanted everyone to like have consensus on decisions and things like that. And so I think it's important to have that balance amongst that experience and also that culture that's, you know, it's not about, you know, the friend club. It's about mm -hmm. the mission that you're trying to go after. No, absolutely. That being said, this doesn't make it easy. Because whether you're in Rand's position where you're trying to consensus build on things that he just wants to happen, or you're in a very, very disagreeable culture, and you probably shouldn't be like all the way on the other side of the spectrum, it's a good balance in between, it's still emotionally really, really tough to deal with. But you have to embrace the uncomfortableness that comes with that, right? Totally. I think especially for, for folks who well, are... Where, where yeah. my heart breaks, <laughs> where my heart is like, oh, when, it, when I'm listening to Rand is when... Yeah, he talks about some of these things because I, I, you know, I just empathize so much with that could have been me or that was me in these certain situations. And what I really want to learn from Randa, and he's about to tell us about this, is like how you actually cope with those things inside a company, especially as things are moving so quickly. So let's go back to Rand and learn a bit more. So Do you find, so I, I know you've written a lot and I've appreciated this so much, like stuff on mental health as like yeah. a founder and... You know, I'm I'm also in the people pleasing category where I'm like incredibly insecure and I'm yeah, like, yeah, do you right? like me? Do you like me? Like I have to yell at you. <laughs> oh my god, you is like someone me? saying something bad about me? Yeah, yeah. Do I go out to and complain oh, about me. Oh no, they're upset. Let me go fix it, right? And so how how do you how did you manage that? I mean, it's a little bit smaller now. It's you and Casey. I think just you and Casey right now, right? <laughs> yeah, if Casey has beers with his so wife and complains like, about me, I'm fine. Yeah. Um, but like, how how did you? Because amongst chaos, amongst struggle. And then you have all the like classic things with just being a founder, right? Sure, yeah. All of those things at once, like what, you know, and you weren't allowed to shave your mustache until you got back to profitability. Which oh, that was a self-imposed. Probably, probably was stressful once you committed to that. Oh, God. Yeah. Especially on humid days, it would just go, Pfft. Yeah. It was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be totally honest, Patrick. I, I don't think I ever got to a place where I was comfortable and happy with it uh, while I was at Moz. I, what I want to believe is that now being able to have some distance from that, if I get into those situations again, I will be much more comfortable with it, right? I think that once you can see from the outside, like, God, why was I so obsessed with these people? Like, I realize now that that doesn't, that doesn't truly impact me. It doesn't truly impact them. It's, it's fine. We can, we can be okay letting people go who are not good fits. Yeah. I can be okay... People go out and complain about me. Yeah. I can be okay if not everyone on a team likes me. Um, I can be okay with I make the final call and it's wrong. And then the next one's wrong. And the next one's wrong. 
and the next one's wrong. And we finally get to a good place. And there's three people who were, you know, burnt out along those couple of years that are like, Rand's the worst. Don't work with him. Yeah. Right? And, and being okay with that yeah. as opposed to being absolutely paralyzed by it. Yeah. I, I don't know whether that's age that helps with that. You know, you get to a place where you're like, oh, yeah. I'm not in my 20s anymore. I don't, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't care as much about that. Yeah, I can choose my friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah, I mean, I, right. I think that that's a big part of it too. Many, yeah. many cultures, many work-based cultures are also how people find their friends yeah. and their colleagues and people that they date, right? And these kinds of things. And that's yeah. not always great either. Yeah, that's tough. That's super cool. Yeah, I think like thinking about, I think it's iterations, right? Because you have enough as therapy. long as things don't blow up. Yeah, therapy is great yeah. for this, right? Because you have these conversations and then the, you know, the, your counselor, your therapist or your business coach or whatever mm-hmm. says like, okay, Patrick, it sounds like you're telling me all these things. Why, why do you feel that way? And then you ask yourself that question. You have this like, and you're like Eureka. Oh, I shouldn't think that way. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And so cool. then I think once you're aware of that behavior, then you can start to work on it. And then it's just a question of, are you good enough at doing that work on yourself that you can apply and improve and get to a healthier place. And I mean, the, you know, the sources of anxiety and the sources of, you know, making irrational and illogical emotional decisions is just humanity, right? Like we're all human and, and you get to this, I think you, you never get to the place where you do it all the time, but you work towards getting to a place where you forgive yourself and you say, it's not my fault and it's not their fault and it's, and it's okay. Right, and it's okay, and that, that's hard. It's hard to do. <laughs> Clearly, it's very hard. What do you think of this? I mean, I think first that it's, it's, uh, it paints a different perspective on the identity of a CEO, I think, while you're going through it, and then as you reflect back on it, right? I think Rand's extremely honest about uh, how he transitioned from a state of wanting to be like, you know, finding consensus um, to a state of being disagreeable and and, and finding that culture. And I think um, seeing that tied to uh, the the growth of the business is is pretty fascinating. How do you think we do at Profwell with this? Dangerous question. Yeah, I I mean, it's an evolution. I think think because it's so core to our culture, we repeat these values every other week at our all-hands meetings. Um, It's definitely top of mind. Um, as far as the culture goes, right? Now, in practice, day-to-day, it's not easy. And I think, you know, we can obviously get better in the execution of some of these things. But um, as far as being disagreeable goes and and, uh, trying to find the truth behind what what the best way forward is, I I think we're we're decent. Yeah, I think we've lucked into it. You think so? Yeah, I I think that just because the basis of the personalities that mixed together. And I think that, I don't think we've been intentional about creating our team of rivals. You know, the, the mm. old Lincoln, you know, metaphor about putting together a cabinet of people who are, are the best people for the job, even though they may disagree. Yeah. And actually the disagreement is, is what produces, you know, great results. I think that we kind of lucked into that. And I think that, you know, prior to maybe this year, you know, we, I'd give us maybe a C plus on, Things like, you know, letting folks go who mm-hmm. maybe weren't great fits, um, measuring what is a great fit, yeah. right? Uh, these types of things. And I think that where we struggled a lot and, and I think where, you know, we had a little bit of culture shock this year was I think we, or I should say last year, 2019, because it's going to come out in 2020, 
I think we struggled a lot when it came to, you know, accepting some of these things. Like we even, you know, had some of this consensus building of always thinking it was our fault, always thinking that we needed to, you know, put together some sort of plan or something like that to, to, to help either a person, which I think is the right instinct to have, yeah. but shortening that cycle and going from a place of, you know, being okay with mediocrity, being okay with, Hey, this, this just isn't working to getting to a place of like not accepting it yeah. and then putting in places to measure that so that you can not accept it quicker um, or get the person the right skills or the right, you know, coaching that they need. And I think it's just really hard, you know, more people, more problems. Right. Yeah. And I think that a lot of us listen to, you know, the Netflix doctrines and, you know, the Patty McCords of the world who I know we, we really kind of, you know, vibe with and they, you know, they go, yeah, yeah, I want a pro team. I want a pro team. When in reality, a lot of us are running our companies like, you know, club teams. Hey, everyone gets a spot. Everyone gets playing time, these types of things. And, you know, everyone, you know, let's be friends, you know, as Rand was talking about. And at the end of the day, this isn't friend club. You know, this is a mission. We're trying to do something that's really, really difficult. And we're trying to do it with not enough resources in a short amount of time, whether you're funded, bootstrapped or whatever. And so I think that's that's the biggest thing that I would leave, you know, folks with is like do that self-reflection, but really, really make sure that you're not only putting that team together that has that experience and has that wisdom as much as humanly possible, but you're truly aligning with what you want. Yep. It's totally fine to have a family. It's totally family as a company. It's totally fine to have that club team as long as you understand what the consequence of that is. And it's totally fine to have a pro team as long as you're okay with the trade-offs that are going to come from that. I think for me, it's helpful to understand and, and know from others that, listen, what you're signing up for is going to be really difficult. And these are uh, these are the trade-offs, like you said, that you're signing up for. And if, if that's not a good fit, that's completely okay. Uh, maybe it's just not a good fit at that company, right? Um, and if it is, then great. Lean into that and, and let's go kick some butt. And I think also having the relationship where you can talk about these things. I think that's the really big thing that we're not really talking about here is that I don't know if Rand had the people around him that he could talk about this kind of stuff with, or maybe he could, but he didn't necessarily use it in the right direction or the direction, right? Because it's hard. Like, this isn't easy, right? And especially when your mindset's like that and you didn't have the distance or the benefit of the distance from a second company to his first company, it's one of those things that you got to have that right culture where you can talk about these things. You can talk about those failures and you're not just expected to win, win, win all the time because you know when you're trying to build something from nothing, you're going to lose almost as often, if not much more than you're actually going to win. Right. All right. So let's recap. What did we learn today? Uh, don't start a company with your mom. It always ends poorly. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I, I think we learn. It, it's so hard to go back to some of the earlier points because I think the later points are kind of the overarching enveloping points of things. I think the biggest thing is being disagreeable, not consensus building is, is something that's going to help your business a lot. You have to find the right balance. It's not licensed to be a jerk or anything like that, but like really, really finding that balance is important. And then I think the second thing is that retention is absolutely crucial to growing a subscription business today, right? Uh, companies over-index on acquisition over and over again. And as you grow, uh, you just have to you know lean into making sure your retention is up to par. Yeah, and I think the one thing that can't be overemphasized is don't suffer in silence. Right. I think that's the biggest thing. And, and you might not realize that you're suffering at the time. You might not understand why things aren't working. But if you're introspective, you know, 
and, and you're really, really thinking about what you're learning or not learning. And then you also have people around you that are trying to challenge you and, and learn from you and maybe even a therapist that's helping you kind of deal with these emotions. That's what makes a great founder. That's what makes a great executive is someone who, who can handle that ego, that humility and that pain all at the same time and still keep moving forward. Makes total sense. Well, that's all for this week. If you want to find Rand on Twitter and thank him for imbuing this wisdom on us today, he is at Rand Fish. And if you also want a copy of his book, Lost and Founder, you can find it on Amazon. Or if you want a free copy, we have a couple dozen copies here to give away to our listeners. Um, feel free to give us a five-star review on iTunes and then email a screenshot of the review to Patrick at ProfitWell.com. And we will hook you up with Lost and Founder for free. This has been a Recurse Studios production, the fastest growing subscription network out there. If you find use for this show, subscribe for more like it at ProfitWell.com slash Recur. 